I grew up, you know, my dad was a doctor. We had a lovely house, went to a private school. That was one day playing rugby, eating meat pies. The second day in the middle of the desert, sleeping on the floor, cold showers, waking up at four o'clock in the morning and doing all this chanting stuff. It was not pretty. It was a really hard adjustment. The people who have the least actually enjoy themselves the most. We always seem to be preparing to live life. We're not really taught how to be in the moment. The first keynote that I did, and I told my story, 400 people came up afterwards and shared their story. If you have the courage to tell your story, other people will come share their story with you. It gives them permission and you show vulnerability. So I believe in a phrase, not very profound. I think I came up with it, I don't know. You've got to turn shit into fertilizer. Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological, and emotional state. Hello, it's Andrew May, and welcome to the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Kamal Sama is the monk who didn't sell his Ferrari. That's because he never had one. From being a monk to a venture capitalist and an author, Kamal knows a thing or two about resilience. In fact, his business is called Resilium. Born in the East Indian state of Assam, Kamal came to Australia when he was four. He called himself a dorky Indian kid with no friends. God, disagree with that, my friend. Who then discovered rugby union. He can't stand cricket, an Indian not really enjoying cricket. We're going to dig into that one. Kamal then turned into a rugby-hungry, girl-hungry fiend. That's his own words. Not happy with this iteration, at the age of 13, Kamal's parents had a bright idea. And that bright idea was to send him to live in an ashram and to study to be a monk for seven long years. Kamal came back to Australia when he was 19. He studied an honours degree in economics. Wiz, put the kettle on, mate. This is a very long bio. He studied a degree in economics at the University of Sydney. Then he did an MBA at UNSW. After that, he joined McKinsey & Co. He was then targeted to work as the head of strategy at St. George Bank. He held additional roles at AMP Capital and also at Eli Lilly before launching his own VC. By any definition, and that's Eastern or Western, life for Kamal was going great until he had his empty heart experience, the death of his first daughter. When his daughter passed away, everything changed in an instant. Kamal struggled with depression, he struggled to get out of bed, and by his own admission, he thinks he could have easily become an alcoholic. But his past life provided a set of skills that he could lean into. Six years studying as a monk does give you some mental skills. And also finding something to believe in and and something that he now says is his calling. And for Kamal, that calling is the prevention of youth suicide. Kamal co-founded two venture capital businesses in the IT and biotech sectors, and he is currently chair of RUOK. He is also co-founder of the not-for-profit initiative CaptivateTheFuture.com that builds resilience, self-esteem and confidence in high school students through public speaking. Over the past 20 plus years, Kamal has delivered significant results for people and for companies with his customised framework and teaching. He's author of three books, including Mental Resilience, The Power of Clarity, How to Develop the Focus of a Warrior and the Peace of a Monk, The Leadership Leap, Unlearning How to Lead, and Win-Win Conversations, The Art and Science of Human Connection. And more than all that, he is the man that I look to with grace and poise and presence. Uh, we're doing some work together, especially in the Navy. And we did a, a debrief recently, Kamal, and oh, I said to Angela, that man makes me sick. But the, the feedback we got about you is just fantastic. We love working with you. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful. It's a big bio. And, and I have, I've known you for 
15 plus years. And one of the joys of doing a podcast, you get to really go deep and, and with you to actually work out which areas do we go deep. We could be here. This could be a Joe Rogan-like podcast for two and a half or three hours, uh, maybe without some of the, 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 the blow-ups on the internet. But the three areas yeah. I'd like to really click on with you is number one, the monk mentality. Two, the art and science of human connection, because you epitomize connection. And three, parenting and younger kids. So you're happy with those three frames? Perfect. Absolutely perfect. So before we get in talking about monk mentality, growing up in India and, and you're not into cricket, what, what happened there? No, no. So I, I actually grew up in Australia. Like, so I was born in India, came to Australia when I was four, uh, grew up in Australia until I was 13. Didn't really like cricket. Cricket didn't do it for me. I loved rugby. I just thought rugby was the bee's knees. It was fast. Uh, there was a ball that didn't look like a ball. <laughs> and all the Indians would say, that's not a ball. I said, yeah, it's a ball. <laughs> and I, I like the I like the camaraderie of it. It's funny, you know, it's a very touchy game. Like you hug one another, you pack down in a scrum. It's not like cricket. It's very cricket's very whoa, you know. It's gentle, <laughs> like little little claps. Very gentle. And, uh, Yes, I like the mud. I liked getting, you know, you know, getting absolutely, you know, especially when in the Blue Mountains, it was cold. You played in winter. Yeah, it was, that, that was my game. And what was your position? I was the hooker because of the shortest guy in the team. Well, no, no, no. Come <laughs> on, my friend. The most compact in the team. Uh, and hookers are nuggety and they're gritty and they're resilient and they can also be a little bit. Did you have good chat? Yeah, yeah. I think when I first packed down in a scrum, I had no idea what I was in for. But it's a good experience. It's a really good experience. All right. So uh, the monk experience, 13 years of age and knowing you and talking to you about this and like you, you are, the joke at the start was Robin Sharma has written a book called The Monk Who Didn't Sell His Ferrari. Now, he wasn't a monk, was he, Sharma? Is that just he a story? He's a monk hairstyle. Well, I have a monk hairstyle. At the start, I've got to say this as well. You, Wizard, did you see what he's doing? He was brushing his hair and I said, stuff you. Like, you, you're making me jealous. Let's, let's hang up. Let's go again another time. 13 years of age. Yeah. It was tough. It was really, really tough. So I grew up, you know, my dad was a doctor. We had a lovely house. We had a couple of cars, went to a private school. That was one day playing rugby, eating meat pies. The second day, woke up in the middle of the desert, sleeping on the floor, cold showers, waking up at four o'clock in the morning and doing all this chanting stuff. It was not pretty. It was a really hard adjustment. And I didn't speak the language. So, you know, I- So in the desert, yeah, not in Australia, was, was it back in India? Back in India, this is back in India, yeah. And it got really hot and uh, deserts have scorpions and I'm really, really scared of scorpions. So yeah, so it was a really, it was a, it was a huge culture shock. Uh, going there. I, I, I was homesick. I missed the Blue Mountains. So you know, just think about Blue Mountains and then the desert. It was the two, two different things. And, you know, I didn't like the food. I didn't like the discipline. I was very lucky, though. I did meet my yoga teacher when I was there, my master, my yoga, who's outside the monastery. And he really, really helped me. And he uh, helped me understand my breath, my mind, my body basically understood, he helped me understand what made me mean. So Kamal, I've got to ask, did you really stuff up? Did you try and hotwire a car? Did you did you take this, this sporting level to the extreme? Or 
Was that the culture of your your parents growing up? Is, is that what they did back in India? And even though you're living in Australia, they were still following the, the Indian way? My parents were first-generation migrants. So they came, my dad was 40 when he came. So he didn't understand Australia. We grew up in the Blue Mountains, Penrith. I think they were really worried that, you know, I might go to alcohol or drugs and stuff like that. So they thought, are we going to still be able to connect with our child? And will he grow up with the values that we think are important? And so they saw me playing rugby, uh, going to discos, going out with girls. And it's so foreign to the way that they were brought up. So not that they did anything wrong. I think it was just normal Aussie kid. It was a, being You're a normal being a Blue Mountains Aussie kid experience. hanging out. I was being a Blue Mountains kid. I, I went to the um, police boys club at Penrith. So, you know, I you know I played for South Penrith Rugby Club. I, I played soccer. I, I loved my sport. Uh, yeah, so I kind of thought, not that I wanted to be, I wanted to be a wallaby. Don't get me wrong. I want to be the first ever Indian wallaby. And obviously, as you know, there's been no Indian wallabies to date. Uh, they missed their chance with me. Uh, <laughs> that was a joke. Um, but, <laughs> but if anybody's listening, you know. Um, Never too late, huh? Never too late. <laughs> yeah, so, no, so it wasn't really... I was doing anything wrong. I think they really wanted to make sure that I stayed close to them and I got a value set. And it was not a done thing. So my dad didn't go to a monastery. My cousins never went to a monastery. They just thought, yeah, it was the right thing for me to do. Kamal, it's hard to not ask this next question, bringing my own personal experience. I'll say that at the start. But at 13 years of age, I had mm. no idea mm. about the world. At 13 years of age, I had no idea about relationships. Where was I at 13? Yes. And then we were moving to Dubbo in central New South Wales. I cannot think how on earth I would have been able to learn the skills to upgrade my mindset. How on earth did you do that at 13 years of age without you know, sure. falling in a heap and without crumbling? So I was 13 at the time when I went to the monastery and I stayed seven years. So I was about 19 when I came out. The cultural shock, the, the thing about it is that we didn't have TV. We didn't have, we were lucky to read books. Um, we did a lot of, I did a lot of yoga. I did a lot of meditation. I started to discover my mind. I read a lot of the different religions. So I was exposed to Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity by the Jesuits. I studied Islam especially the Sufi tradition. I studied Judaism in the Kabbalah. So I kind of, I was exposed to multiple religions, multiple bodies of thought, multiple philosophies. And yeah, at 13, you're going like, oh, this is, you know, they're, they're talking about detachment. They're talking about all these lofty, and you think, how do I, what is detachment? I'm struggling, detached from what? <laughs> like, you know, you only discover detachment when you become attached to stuff. Like, your girlfriend, your partner, your kids, your career, your possessions. So having those, you know, deep philosophical conversations and those deep philosophical thoughts at a young age, I don't know if it's good or bad, but yeah, I did it. Uh, so I'll tell you what I find struggle. Like there are a lot of people like Robin Sharma, there's a guy called uh, Jay Shetty that say they were monks and it's very much about self and you know my picture you know it's just it rubs me up the wrong way like i kind of think if you lose if you get your ego big in this game you lost everything because you, and, you know they come from a monkish perspective so that's their view but i kind of think well no that's not what not what our philosophy is about it's about humility it's about the work first so when i do a keynote i think you know 10 percent is on me 
and the rest 90 percent is on the, the the i'm going to use a word like dharma it's the dharma it's the path um it's not about the the kamal sama kamal sama is irrelevant to the whole thing he's a figment of your imagination and my imagination basically <laughs> so, yeah um, and I, I, I worry that people get so addicted to the figments of their imagination. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, Kamal, isn't it? Because at the stage, you would have had no idea that this experience has set you up to really be different and unique and own this. And, and I've, I've travelled around the world and seen you speak. It's always an honour when we're on a similar stage or sharing a conference card. But when you get up and talk about breathwork and cold water therapy and understanding who you are and thought processes and belief and reflection. And, 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 and if anyone asks, well, where is your experience on this? You blow everyone else out of the water. Though you must giggle <laughs> a little bit when you see these you know, young punks come and say, hey, let's do cold water therapy because we, we know that they've been doing this with the Navy SEALs. And you're like, go do it for six years in <laughs> India, champ. And, and one of the opportunities where I'm sure you had time, you know, lag time is a beautiful coaching psychology term. How others see you, we don't often see mm. ourselves until you forced to write a book, do a presentation, you know, maybe do a podcast. You said the following during your TED Talk. There was a story about a psychiatrist on the quest to find which group of people amongst doctors, nurses and lawyers who live the best lives. After looking at all the research, I found out that the people that live their best lives are monks and nuns. Yeah, it's a weird concept, isn't it? The people who have the least actually enjoy themselves the most. So I always believe that we always seem to be preparing to live life. We're not really taught how to be in the moment to have that appointment with life. I'll give you the example. Um, I'm sure you've gone to a really nice restaurant and fantastic food. And if you're in a business meeting, you're actually not focusing on the food. You're focusing on the, the conversation. When you're a monk, the food tastes freaking amazing. Like, what the heck? This apple is like the best apple I've ever had. This glass of water is like the best glass of water I've ever had. The reason for that is there's an appointment with life and we show up for that appointment. Most of the time, there's an appointment with life and we're distracted doing something else. It's like, you know, the person you love the most is kissing you, but you're on the phone checking your Facebook likes. That's like the metaphor, I would say. And I think that's across the board. We, we, we miss that appointment with life. So yes, monks and nuns have very simple lives, but boy, do they enjoy every single second. They really squeeze the the joy out of every single moment and morsel. How do you teach that? And and I look at you know where you've worked at McKinsey, arguably some of the brightest talent that goes into consulting firms and banks and telcos and run companies around the world. How do you teach some of those philosophies and, and really gratitude is at the source of what you're talking about. And we've spoken about this with children. Like you want your kids to be grateful and appreciative. My kids, and when I say this, they go, tell me another story, granddad. Yeah, when I was a boy, my kids are already starting to take the piss. <laughs> but their quality of life and what they experience and what they have is so different to what I had. But so how do you teach this? Wow. So it's really funny, you know, like when we first started the business, we thought we were going to teach executives how to do meditation mindfulness. This was like 17 years ago, and I don't think people were ready for it. So we did it literally for six weeks and got, yeah, people aren't ready for it. So we moved and we thought, okay, let's start from a leadership perspective. How do you lead yourself? So for a lot of people, even now, I think these concepts are new concepts, although they've been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And now people are going, yeah, oh, you can do, you know, Google search from within and all that kind of stuff. It's easy to teach it than practice it. 
and I'll tell you what I mean, like, um, especially during COVID, I do, you know, 10 day, 11 day silent retreats where I don't talk for seven, you know, 11 days. And I've done them before. During COVID, like at the end of COVID, I think at the end of 20, or well, not the end of COVID, but during COVID, I was lucky to be able to do a 11 day retreat in silence, meditating for 14, 15 hours a day. It was really, really hard. And the reason for that is I think that we got addicted to dopamine. Like, I'm sure you've had this experience. You'd go from meeting to meeting and you just basically switch off from one Zoom call and switch on to another WebEx call or a Teams call before you actually walk from one meeting to the next meeting. We got so addicted to our screens that that dopamine just became so insidious that when I, when I had the dopamine detox with the meditation retreat, you were like, that was hard. So I think teaching it is quite easy. Living it is hard. Being an example for other people to say, okay, they have a sense of centeredness and they have a bit of gravitas. And when I'm talking to them, they're totally in the moment with me. I think that's what I, I find the, the most, the most challenging. Saying that, when we first started the program, we, like what we we asked people to, you know, be still for thirty seconds. They found it really hard. By the end of the first day, they would be sitting still for three hours. I'm trying to practice some monk-like listening, and uh, I didn't want to interject. <laughs> but when when you said an eleven-day silent retreat, my yeah. son would, if you could get him to do an eleven-minute silent retreat <laughs> that would be amazing if you could get most of our executives and we work in similar spaces at the executive level yeah. and you're right there's a there's a beautiful book have you read dopamine nation it's a book i'm reading at the moment yes yeah yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah, goes into the powerful. science around all this and we are really just wiring our system our autonomic nervous system and our brains are jacked the whole time interesting if you struggled to go back and do an 11 day retreat and you train this for six or seven years, gosh, is there any hope for the average person who, and, and the question I ask to actually find, because you, you're not meant to ask people's age anymore. I got into trouble at a consulting firm I may have worked at in the past, could have been called KPMG, when I asked people in the audience what their age was. So I got pulled into one of the groups said, look, Andrew, in this day and age, it's been, it's seen as insensitive to ask some people their age. And I was, I was incredulous, like, really? So uh, in a clever way, you can ask people, you know, what age were they when they got their first mobile phone? So how old were you when yes, you got okay. your first mobile? Oh, wow. Oh, I, oh, that's a really good question. Maybe 30, I think, maybe about, oh, maybe 30, yeah. So I was 21 I was 30, yeah. and it was a Nokia Sport and I can remember walking around. There's a girl that I had the hots on. Thankfully, I wasn't living at home. I was 21. Mum and dad did not send me to a monastery, okay, for trying to, <laughs> trying to womanize and, and, and attract the attention of Genevieve, who was a croupier at Rest Point Hotel Casino. And I can remember ah, walking yeah. in and I, I had yeah. the mobile phone on my hip and it rang and Genevieve looked at me and, and, and looked as low. Wow, he's got a mobile. I'm sounding so old. Uh, <laughs> Most kids now are getting mobile phones in about year six. When I see kids get a mobile in year two or three, I just think, oh, my goodness, you're setting up so many problems. And I don't know whether you saw the research came out two weeks ago. Dr. Tom and I wrote about this in MatchFit, exposure theory, exposure to three different parts, shitty processed food or uh, UPF, ultra-processed foods. Two is lack of movement, mainly through technology. And three is over-stimulation of the sympathetic nervous yes, system. Yes. For the first yes, time yes. ever – or in, in modern 
modern times, our children's lifespan is coming back and they won't live as long as mm. us, the kids that are exposed mm. to shitty processed foods, yeah, mm. mobile phone technology and also not moving. So it is crazy, mm. right? We've got this whole society now that yeah. we're overstimulating, not exercising and filling up full of shitty foods. Anyway, I digress. But the whole mobile phone question, when did you get it? If you're at 30... Well, what hope is there to teach this stuff, mate, for kids who are getting mobile phones at 10, 9, 8 years of age? I, look, I think we're the first generation that's gone through our working lives with mobile phones um, and that always on, we are paying a price for it. I think, you know, we're seeing kids that have gone through the whole schooling life now with mobile phones. Or, you know, you, you'll sit in restaurants like, you know, young kids is two or three years old. They're not given the golden book. They're given the phone or the iPad. I do, I do believe that rewires your brain. It rewires it for instant gratification um, and therefore delayed gratification, as you know, is one of the predictors of resilience, one of the predictors, funnily enough, to be in a relationship because relationships are hard and you don't get it straight away. You don't, you know, you, you have to work through it. You have to, you don't go get same day delivery. I think we we are going to go to a tipping point where people are just going to go the same way, you know, we don't give our kids uh, sweetened soft drinks anymore. I, I think we will go to a tipping point when people will realize there is a adverse neurological and psychological consequences for our addiction to phones. Are you glad you went to the monastery for all that time? Has that given you an advantage if you had your time over again? I found it tough. I was very lonely for seven years. I miss my parents. I missed Australia. I was also very embarrassed of being in a monastery. I skipped high school, so I didn't do any high school. So I found university ridiculously hard. So I had to go back to, I went to TAFE to do my HSC. So then when I went to university, I, I was embarrassed. At McKinsey, I never told anybody that I didn't do high school. Everybody went to the top elite high schools. I went to nothing. So for a lot of my life, I've been trying to hide it. And I was embarrassed by it. Now that I've become older, I'm grateful that my parents sent me, but it came at a cost. It came at a price. Like I know there are people now in the marketplace saying, well, I was a monk and it was fantastic. I said, I found it hard. I found it lonely. And even to this day, I know that, you know, like I look at my son and he's got these amazing school friends that he went through life with. And he had these amazing experiences at school. So I have to admit, I'm not sure. I'm kind of, there are sometimes I look at my son or my daughter and I go, oh man, I wish I had what you had. Yeah. Come and spend a weekend with my good mates from Dubbo, Mario, Ego, Dino and Lapo, and you might not think you're missing out much. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'll send this little okay. excerpt to them as well. They reckon I'd dine off their relationship and they're asking for royalties. <laughs> when, when, when did that shift? Because that, I've never heard you talk about that, and I've only ever yeah. known you to to be comfortable. And I, I would say my view of you is you've always been comfortable in your own skin. You've always owned your story. So I've never heard you say that. Oh no, yeah. Um. So I think when I wrote my one of my first book, Mental Resilience, when my daughter passed away, and I wrote the book, for me it was about owning up to my background. It was being comfortable enough in my own skin to say, you know what, I didn't go to school and I'm no longer embarrassed about it. And I'm surprised how many times I told the story and people go, oh, wow, that's amazing. And I'm going, no, it was bloody hard work. For seven years, 
I was an Aussie kid in an Indian ashram where I, a monastery where I felt like I'd never belonged. And the thing I haven't told you also is when I came back to Australia when I was 19, that was hard. I had a, strong, a very strong Indian accent. Mm. Um, my English was not great. Well, it was a hin- Hindi was the language you were using or were you up further north? No, no, no. I was t- uh, well, as a monk, you don't speak much. <laughs> and you also speak. Um, so fair, I wasn't- fair answer. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the and script you read- is it in is it in Hindi? What what what's the language? It is Hindi. So Hindi Sanskrit. So um, I could recite the eighteen chapters of the Bhagavad Gita in Sanskrit, um, which is kind of cool, but <laughs> doesn't impress anybody in parties. Um, so. Did your parents? Did you did you grow up bilingual? Or did your mother and father speak to you? Obviously, you grew up in the Blue Mountains, English. At home, did you speak? The native tongue? Not much, because at that time, when we came to Australia, we were encouraged not to speak our native dialect, because what would happen was, you know, what what I would do when I was, you know, at school is I'd say a few sentences in English and another few sentences in Assamese. And so the teacher said, look, you've got to stop speaking to him in your in, in your dialect. You, you have to make sure that you speak purely in English. So no, the short answer is not really. I, I grew up. So that language barrier was hard. I had to learn both Hindi and Sanskrit from scratch. Wow. Not something you did to your son, obviously. You didn't send him off. No, 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 no. But yeah, and I, you know, the other thing is like, I miss those seven years with my parents. Like I'm very, very close to my son and my daughter. Like we've had amazing, like, you know, somebody said, oh, you raised your best friends. And that's true. I, I'm, I'm my best friends with my kids. So I, I felt like I missed out on that. Yeah. Did you come back at all in that seven year period? No, 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 not at all. I didn't realize that either. So you you, you yeah. caught a one-way ticket and stayed and then yeah, yeah. the other ticket came seven years yeah. later. Yeah. Pretty, well, no, actually, I, when, I, when I turned 19, I told my parents I'm leaving. I do not want to stay. I want to go back to, Indi- I want to, go back to Australia because I'm an Aussie kid in, a, in India. What am I doing here? Like, I look like this, but I felt Aussie. I'm, I'm a rugby player. I'm a, give me meat pies, give me... <laughs> I don't want rice and dal. Like, <laughs> that's foreign to me. Like, I want to, yeah. I often say to, to executives or other people I'm coaching, entrepreneurs, that we teach what we're good at or we teach some of the pain points or challenges in our life. So I teach high performance because I got to a good level, not great. So what was the burning platform under me in my late 20s, early 30s is I got to a good level running won multiple state championships, but didn't go to the next level. So I actually think I am really good at helping people go to that next level because I did not get to the top level or maybe the level other people thought I could have. As a framework to talk about what you teach and about connection, yeah, it suddenly makes so much more sense when you explore, you have seven years where you don't feel connected. You have seven years where you have, and I'll ask you in a moment to talk us through the average day, but so much silence. I don't imagine you were playing cricket, playing handball, playing soccer, playing whatever sport. It was solitude, like lack of connection. Yeah, it was uh, was lonely. It was very, very lonely. So I think it's a great point because my conversation skills weren't great. Uh, My ability to connect with people wasn't great. So I had to learn that from scratch. And I read books upon books upon books. But then also when I got married, I didn't have relationship skills because I didn't go out with anybody. <laughs> you know, I, like I, 
I hadn't got the, the relationship skills and how to be in relationship uh, with other people. So how did you learn that? Like just through like mistakes? Did you read books? Did you get mentoring? Because this is such a formative part, even dating, right? Just the, the stupid yes. things we say as, say as teenagers. So two things. Um, I read a lot before I got married about, you know, communication skills and stuff like that. But then also once we got married and we lost our daughter, I realized how challenging how challenged I was in my relationship skills, how to be in a relationship with myself and to be in a relationship with another person. So the statistics you may know is, you know, it, the divorce rate is about 50%. Uh, the divorce rate, whether it's the death of a first child, is about 90 95%. And it's because it puts so much pressure on the relationship. Uh, so for me to try and figure out how do we stay connected, you know, and, and we were dealing with it very differently and how was she going to stay connected with me and vice versa. It was, yeah, that was tough. So the divorce rate when your first child passes away is 90 to 95 percent. Wow. Yeah. And I I can't imagine that, Kamal. I I think, and and I just feel uh, this heaviness because I'm sure when you tell that to everyone, people put it in their own shoes, you know, what would that be like? But this is what I see. I see this man that lights up the screen. I see this man who has wisdom. I ask you, you know, how do you present? Like you present this beautiful mix of energy and, and high level and you keep people going on this dun, 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 and then you'll drop and you'll just make this poignant reference. And I go, God, how can this man have so much talent? <laughs> so I've, I've only ever seen that side of you, the poise, the control. Yeah, you had training in a monastery, but – I don't know. How, how did you reframe that? And 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 I we, I did ask if we could talk about this because I didn't even know whether mm. you were comfortable talking about this in an open domain. Mm. How did you process when when your daughter passed away? Very poorly. One of the things I was very lucky to have is some men in my life that guided me. And I asked for guidance. I asked for help. And I said, "Look, I'm not doing too well. I need some help." And then when they gave me the help. I was very grateful for it and I took it. Um, so I have had really five strong men around me to pull me out. And those men were vital. But then, you know, my wife and I, uh, my wife was strong, but we were going on different paths. And then for us, the real challenge was to stay connected during that time. Yeah, that took, a, that took us learning a lot and exploring a lot. Uh, and I'm a kind of prop person who sees a problem, resources researches it to no end to find it. So I have read hundreds of relationship books, you know, gone to many courses. Most of them were not that useful. Some of them were absolute gold. And, you know, I think you have to go through that list of, and I think you have this experience as well, um, is that you, we read, we read, we read, uh, or we go, we learn and stuff like that. And a lot of it's like, you know, 90% is blah, and then 10% is gold. Yeah, my experience that I've told you, I went through a marriage breakdown in my early 40s and I'd been the high performance guy, good at sport, good at work, good at studying, building businesses and suddenly a relationship failure. I didn't have the the frameworks or the mental models to work out how to do an iOS upgrade that had been perform, 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 perform and suddenly marriage failure. I thought if I'd ran into you in that time period and I would have known you just before then, I either would have avoided you, not through anything personal, Mm. just that I I wouldn't have had the 
the, the composure to talk and hold it together. Or if it was uh, Dr. Nicola Gates talks about lily pads, there are a few people, you had your five elders or the five men, I had a few people and a few even places were like my frog on the lily pad where I felt comfortable. Everything outside those lily pads wasn't comfortable. So it's interesting. Yeah. Exactly. And just thinking of your yeah. background, you know, the 13-year-old kid flourishing in the mountains, seven years of loneliness, then you come back and you start dating, start interacting, uh, start living a, a life, then where you work, I just can't, I can't actually fathom the contrast between you know, praying, meditating, getting excited about one apple. It's probably the, the apple you had on the day or the week. And then going and working for McKinsey <laughs> and then global pharmaceutical like Eli Lilly, St. George Bank, and in their AMP Capital. Like it's just, it does my head in. So I have to be the first time I caught a plane, um, I think it was McKinsey. They sent us to Harvard to do a course. I'm sitting on the plane going like, where the heck am I? Like, you know, we were lucky to have one meal a day. And there are people, I think it was business class or first class, I can't remember what it was. And they're serving me food. Like, what? The, on a plane? Get out of here. Um, so <laughs> I felt like oh, the, the question you asked me was um, about telling my story. I remember the first keynote that I did. And I told my story, I think it was like a you know a thousand people was in the keynote. I think 400 people came up, up afterwards and shared their story. So what I realized very quickly was if you have the courage to tell your story, then people in a respectful way, you know, that other people will come and share their story with you. It gives them permission and you show vulnerability. Uh, and that's been really out of whatever, 20 years of doing this stuff. I've had only two or three people across the thousands who said, in the feedback form, I did need to hear Kamal Sob's story. What was the reason behind that? So, you know, you get it. Yeah, so you, you live. I'd say those two or three people have got some bigger issues than just filling out that feedback form <laughs> and having a crack at your eyes. It's called projection, Kamal. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's right. That's so right. That's right. taking the the, the hardship and now the gift you look, that you learnt from being in a monastery, to take the resilience to to pull yourself back and, and for your wife as well, for both of you to defy the odds and not be the, the 90 to 95%, to be the 5 or 10% that do stay through. Is there anyone better qualified to talk about connection? And I, I, I see you and, and, and what, what people didn't see, I, I, at the start of today's conversation before we went live, you spoke to me about your venture. You, can I talk about that as well, what you're getting really excited yeah, about sure, now? Definitely. And no, mental definitely, health? most definitely, yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. And, and, and I'm going to introduce you to a couple of rugby league players and a, a boxer and a few other athletes, but you light up. And then when you talk to me about, hey, I've just done this global roadshow and working with all these execs and all this, and it's, it, and, but then when you talk about the community work you do, there's a different level of an intensity. And it doesn't mean you don't enjoy the work you do in the corporates. I reckon if you could, you'd just throw all that away and just work in the non-for-profit space because you light up in a whole different way. Yeah, look, I think um, one of the things I'm very grateful that, you know, the work that we do, we get exposed to leaders and leaders are like having a big stick to pull leverage. So if you, my belief is that if you change the mindset of leaders, it's so much easier to change the culture. And we talked about it, you're, you're sharing um, something about, you know, a coach that had a profound impact on the culture of the team. So I, I think that we're very blessed and lucky and uh, whatever, right time, right place to get leaders. But, uh, you know, w there are a couple of things that have guided me. And I think one quote is that 
the way a society treats its weakest and the most vulnerable is the way you judge a society and a culture. And for me, you know, if I look at the war in Ukraine, if I look at the poverty in Africa, the people that suffer the most are generally children. And it's generally female children. It's very, you know, because they are the ones that are left behind. And especially if you're a mom and you're looking after a child, you can't run. You can't run from the bombs. You have to, you're taking your child with you. So I kind of thought, well, what can I do in the work that I do? And um, for me, um, as you know, very passionate about um, prevention of youth suicide, but what I'm also passionate about is making sure that when a child cries, you know, in their home, that they go to a safe pair of arms, you know, not somebody that's going to abuse them or hurt them. And then I've tried to understand, well, what, what drives this? And what we do know is that you can only hurt another human being, if, especially a human being that is weaker than you, that's more vulnerable than you, if you've killed off something inside of yourself. So why don't we try and help people heal again? Um, why don't we create a society and a culture that supports people? Um, so uh, I'm working on a project called the Mentor Movement, which is around helping young boys and men, uh, on everybody, not just men, but boys, but we're going to start with boys and men, uh, have mentors. So when they go through challenges in their life, like I did, you know, I was lucky, you know, I, I had five men to support me. I'd like that for everyone. It, it is so strong. Before you even finish the, the, the end of that story, it is, you're really tapping into some of the challenges you've had and using mm-hmm. that learning. It, this is not textbook stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can talk about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief, you know, from yeah. denial yeah, to yeah. sadness to bargaining to acceptance to you know, accepting and moving on. But you, you don't get that in the manual, right, when when you have yeah. you know, yeah. the the despair of one of your, your children passing away. You don't get that in the manual when you're sitting in a monastery for seven years lonely. you just yeah. got to work that stuff out yourself. So I believe in a phrase, you know, it's not very, not very profound. I think I came up with it. I don't know. Maybe somebody else did. You've got to turn shit into fertilizer. And, you know, how do you turn shit into fertilizer? And I think at the essence of all the great religions I've had a privilege to study, be it Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, the Kabbalah, Sufism, it is the human condition will go through challenges. What do you do? Nobody gets a free ticket out. Everybody's going to have challenges. What do you do with that? And I think turning shit into fertilizer, a very Aussie approach to life, is, is what, and it really ties in with my, my monastic traditions, is understand suffering first, then grow through that suffering. And I, I think what we do is that we kind of idolize happiness. I'm not into happiness. I'm into suffering. Talk to me about suffering. I'll get juiced up. Because, you know, that's what life is about. It's easy to be happy, very challenging to be suffering. So I want to teach people and you know, I want to go on this journey around exploring suffering. What does it mean? How do we, uh, how do we use it? Easy to be happy, but it's not long-lasting. Ice cream makes you happy and then it goes away and so does the sugar hit and then you get fatigued. Mm. It might be mm. a, a beer, it might be sex, might make you happy. But the, the, the whole challenge, and again, I'm on the hobby horse, Wiz, let's go on this one, <laughs> when I was a boy, but this, this instant <laughs> gratification, uh, we, 
back as a kid, if you wanted to do an assignment, you had to beat James Collett at Glenys because James knew the library like the back of his hand, right? So if you didn't get a book before Collett, you waited a week or two. Now everything is drop and drag society. It's in a pill, a potion, a bottle or a lotion. And if that doesn't have an instantaneous fix, we go to somebody else. This is a real challenge. You know, if you and I have very different backgrounds, teach some similar crossover around philosophy, belonging, connection. Uh, even in the work I do in sport, you talk about suffering. That's called an off-season. You literally flog. Right. <laughs> no, it it, it like is. That. You flog like your men that. and women athletes for three or four months and you get this balance between suffering or training and then you give them a bit of recovery and bounce back. So it's that train, recover, train, recover, train, recover. And you condition the system to be yeah, lots of buzzwords but resilient grit, hardy, you condition it so you can go and play. And that's what we're missing in life, totally missing in life. And for, you know, people think, oh, I'm doing the best thing for my kids. I'm sending them to everything. They're having tennis lessons. They're, they're one of the best things you can get for your kids. Yeah, get them active. You know, give them good food. Give them a bit of suffering. But if I say that in some audiences, you can actually watch people wanting to lynch you. How do you navigate this? How do you really tread around these landmines? Because you're, you're a lot more elegant than I am. <laughs> um, so I'll share the story with my son. So my son, uh, he's a TEDx speaker now, but he's on LinkedIn. He teaches other kids. But when he was in fourth class, he got um, really severely bullied to the point we had to take him out of school uh, and he lost his ability to talk. So I taught him how to do public speaking and he hated my guts. He hated my guts for a long time. He said, Dad, no, I don't want to do it. Then by... When he was in sixth class, he got a chance to present at the Opera House. By year 10, he had his own TEDx talk. By, by year 11, he'd, he'd, he'd started a business teaching kids how to do public speaking. The reason why I share that with you is that people find public speaking really, really scary. They also find it really, really stressful. I think you should stress out your kids. So I agree with you. Give them some suffering. Teach them how to do public speaking because they're out there They've got all their eyes looking and their stress hormones are gone up, but it's a safe place. They're not out, you know, doing stuff that is going to cause them harm, but it's a thrill. We want to be scared. It makes us feel alive. So I, I don't know if you still feel scared when you get on stage, but every now and then, and I hate 20 minute presentations. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Does that resonate with you? If I don't get scared, I'm scared. Or if I don't feel scared, I'm scared. And it's different, right? You and I have both done yeah. hundreds, probably thousands of presentations. If you include podcasts, media interviews, we have yes. literally done thousands of interviews slash presentations. For a big presentation, I, I still love the inverted U hypothesis. Learned that as a 19-year-old in uni and now I teach it to all my athletes. I want to be in that sweet spot, so upside down U. Three is yes. what I call seebs yeah. or tired or fatigued. Mm. Seven mm. to eight mm. is when you're fidgety. So if you're seven or an eight mm. and you're like you're too nervous, you need to add some ice mm. and chill out. Yeah. If you're a three, you need to add some fire and actually bring a bit of heat. So I use that I you really do use that filter for myself because like you, if you're talking to an audience where you've done that presentation dozens and dozens of times, yes. they don't yeah. care. And I think one of the biggest gifts that we have is the ability the opportunity to speak to people. And I see this sometimes in speakers who've been doing it for a while. And if you lose that either humility or if you lose sitting or standing in someone else's shoes or sitting in their pants, give up, yeah? So uh, the, the the bigger one that I've had recently though where I had to chill out, I haven't told you this, I did a presentation for 6,000 people about a month ago in Vegas, a big sales kickoff. 
And with 45 minutes to go, I started to, you know, your language, shit myself, and I wasn't turning it into fertilizer. (laughs) And and I ran a psychological experiment going, this is good. I actually haven't felt this for 20-plus years since I was running. Now I know what my athletes, my entertainers are feeling. Run with this. And it was like, all right, you've done your experiment. (laughs) Wrap this up, big fella. You've got to go. And I I went into the toilet. Didn't need to do anything apart from get a quiet calm space and breathe mm. and bring it back. Mm. So, yeah, I felt alive mm. in doing that, answering your question quickly. Absolutely, before every presentation, you should feel some stress. Yeah. And if not, make it. Yeah. So you, you're delivering yeah. what you need to deliver. So let me let me close back on the conversation we had in the first time. So you asked, we, we do sometimes the same presentation over and over again. And you've got to do it like you've done it the first time. So what I'm going to recommend is that it's because – you you get in touch with reality. You, you, you're if you're too calm, you're not in touch with reality. Or if you're hyper, you're not in touch with reality. In the same way, when you eat that apple and you have an appointment with life, eat the apple like you're eating it for the first time in your life, and it's the best thing you've ever had. That's when I think we meet that appointment with life. If you look back over your twenty to twenty-five plus years speaking and teaching. Do you have an example that comes to mind where you have done the same presentation, the same conversation multiple times and you didn't eat the apple? Or do you just nail this all the time? Uh, it's a practice. It's a practice. It's not um, – I remember doing a, a large bank. We did, I think, 100 presentations, the same presentation. And it was myself and a couple of my colleagues and we did it over and over again. Um, by the 91th time, you thought – have I shared this story or was it the last time I shared it? You know, for me, what comes to mind, it is, uh, it's, it's the, the definition of mindfulness. Make sure your mind is full with what you're doing. But there's a very famous Zen quote, when sleeping, sleep, when eating, eat. That's so profound because most of the time when we're sleeping, we think about something else on our phones. When we're eating, we're preoccupied doing something else. The ability to be in the moment is a meditative practice. It's a contemplative practice. So for me, the 91 presentations that I did was an act of meditation because when you're, when you're meditating, you're sitting there, the most mundane thing on the planet, which is your breath, and you've taken millions of breaths. So how do you make sure that that breath that you're taking in at that moment in time is the best breath you've ever taken in your whole life? And you go, oh, this is brilliant. So, you know, you do submersion technology, submersion um, uh, therapy, right? You know, if you're underground and somebody's holding your head underground and suddenly you can take that first breath, every breath has got to be like that. Mm. Yeah. I'll give you two quotes. First one is you. My core belief is that we are missing connections in our lives. This is what creates the biggest challenges in our life. The three things we need to feel are connection to self, connection to others, and connection to purpose. And we'll come back to those three things. The second quote is from Angela Poon, my colleague at Stride Stronger, who's done a number of presentations and working with you. And she told me she might have a little crush on Kamal. She'll be okay with me saying that. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm interviewing Kamal. What do, you, what do you think I should look at? And she said, Kamal is just a great guy and he's super easy to get along with and we can talk for hours. Should be a fun chat. Just get him started. <laughs> it's very sweet (laughs) connection on three areas I like that connection to yourself and who you are so it's an inner circle I can see you others and then big picture 
Yeah, well, actually, there's actually four. So it's connection to self, and a lot of times we're not connected to ourselves. When we're not connected to ourselves, we eat too much, we drink too much, we fight too much. We're, you know, we're just, we're living a little uh, distance from our body and our mind. So that's connection to self. Connection to other is what makes life beautiful is connecting to another human being, you know, or, or even, a, I love my dog, um, connecting to another sentient being is so beautiful. It because we, our lives are in relationship with ourselves. One of the reasons we know we exist is because the other person acknowledges that our existence. It's a very powerful thing, right? And when we're present to them, we give them permission to exist. And that gives them the ability to heal and thrive and grow. Connection to purpose, I think we teach people about profit and creating profit. But we don't teach them how to you know, connect to purpose. You know, what is that? And I think if you don't connect to purpose, you connect destructively to something else, like alcohol, like you know, work, like, you know, workaholic, chocoholic, alcoholic, it doesn't matter what your poison is. It's not that. And the last one is connection to planet. I, I think the First Nations, a group, they, they knew how to connect to planet. And, you know, time and time again, we hear this loneliness piece that comes up is that so many Indigenous and First Nations people, when they're removed from their country, they have this deep sense of loneliness. And I, I feel that too. When I'm in the bush, I, I feel that sense of connection. We haven't spoken about this, but I, I wrote about this in MatchFit that around connection. It's like we have brothers mm. from another mother, very different backgrounds, <laughs> but have, have arrived at a similar way of teaching purpose. That's not true. A lot of people confuse us thinking we're like so many times people say, oh, are you Andrew May? said, no, no, no. He's taller and better looking than I am. I never get confused for your hair, <laughs> but I'll, I'll take getting confused for your grace and poise. But yeah, I, I also talk about connection to what's important to you, and that's that is self interest rather than selfish or a self drive. Because sometimes people will get confused, right? They go, "Oh, Kamal, you're being selfish." No, 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 no. It's it's having interest and looking at you, your body, your brain, your feelings, your relationships, being the best version of yourself. Then you extend that to others. Uh, the next one I go is connection to community and then connection to the planet. So mm. it's very, very similar yeah, that inside yeah. out. And it is when you. Yeah. When you go through challenge and pain, struggle, and then you get comfortable where you are, so you now can tell the story that, yeah, I was in a monastery, it was bloody lonely, but here I've learned it and I didn't even go to high school. <laughs> it's such an interesting story that then it goes to that next connection and builds out. So it totally makes sense. Can you just upload that though? Can people just listen to you in a presentation and go, I've lived for 20, 30 years with the opposite of connection? Because the other... You know, ism, you said alcoholism and, and some of the challenges. I think a lot of it is people get so caught up or they get affluenza, you know, doing all this work for to earn the money they don't need to impress people they don't even like. And then you realize that when you leave an organization, there's a going away party. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll catch up, Thomas. Yeah, come on, it'll be great to see you. Never chat again. So it's all the air kissing yeah. that goes on. Yeah. You asked me a question at the beginning of this was what, what was one of the biggest lessons from the monastery? And for me, it's been around humility. We're not taught humility. If I was to say one skill that we should be teaching more of, people become humble when they go through challenges. But, you know, when you have to, you know, I could not serve myself for seven years. If I was hungry, I'd just have to pull my plate out and hope that somebody would give me something, right? That was the way. And I couldn't pretty much ask for more. 
I would just take what I was given. I, I, I think one of the things that we're facing into, be it with leaders right now, be it global leaders, be it business leaders, is that we need to rediscover our humility. You can't take yourself too seriously. You are living on a rock, hurtling around a big fall of fire. And that, that lack of humility puts a lot of stress on ourselves, put a lot of stress on the people we love and we care about. And it is hard to be in a relationship with the other person. Now, once again, I kind of thought, hey, I got this skill, but I think as, as I've grown with my, my partner, my kids, my career, I keep on getting this lesson of humility. And I, what I think is um, one of the most powerful things is to practice humility, not to just learn it, but how do you practice on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis? It's, it, you know, as a monk you are, you've got to beg for your food in one way. You, you don't have much. You must have done some pretty good role modeling on this and it must make you very proud when your son, and can I'll make sure I get the pronunciation correct, Kailash or Kailash? Kailash, yes. yes. Kailash. Kailash is quoted as saying, my pet project is to help refugees and Indigenous kids build their confidence and to share their stories on an international scale. To do that, we are going to be running programs free of charge for this community. We are in the process of finding sponsors to help us do this, says a determined Kailash. For a boy so young, he's he's certainly got some inspiration from the old man there. And when I when I read that out, <laughs> how, how does that make you feel? Because we're, we're talking, we said the third part today in our rough frame is kids and the future and, and setting kids up. The, the, the first part, I think if you had a circle about kids, you want to set up your own kids, right? So they can then make an impact. So when I read that yeah. out, what do you think? How do you feel? Uh, I feel pretty. I feel pretty joyful. I feel very joyful because I think one of the things that makes a good human being is our ability to serve. Uh, so my daughter and my son, I, I, I feel like they have this serving gene that they want to serve. It's not about the money. It's not about the they want to go out there and serve. And I think they've lived privileged lives. Like we didn't send them to monasteries. And my, my fear is that they felt entitled. I hope that they know they're privileged, but they don't feel entitled. And I, I think it's all their mom that has done all the hard work. But I, I think the fact that, you know, they, they have that sense of wanting to serve is going to keep them joyful on this journey that I have no idea what's going to, what life is going to throw at them, what shit life is going to throw at them. Privilege stitching together what you've just taught me is about humility and coming at it from a place of here's where I am, but having that humility to understand not everyone is like this, whereas entitlement is I deserve this, I own this. I don't yeah. know anything different to this. I don't know what it is to suffer. I don't know what it is to have compassion for others. And I think challenge, like, you know, if you go through a crisis, it can harden you or it can make you more compassionate. And I'm grateful that it's it's softened me rather than hardened me. I have seen it go the other way, though. I've seen people very much hardened through this process. Yeah, so have I. And the work you do with Are You Okay?, uh, are, you, are you still the chair of Are You Okay? No, so I'm the chair of the think tank, so I'm not the, the chair of the board. So the Conversations Think Tank, our job is to look at all the research that other people do, and I'm going to be, try and be cool here, try and make it street, but try and make it um, make it actionable, um, make it like, you know, Are You Okay done this amazing job, and Gavin Larkin, the founder of it, really wanted something that spoke to the person on the street. You know, that not 
you know, not these esoteric ideas. And he was a marketer. And like, how brilliant is this? Are you okay? Four letters. That's it. <laughs> you know, but it encapsulates everything. So our job was to make sure that the messages were clean, crisp, and actionable. And I think, you know, REOK has done an amazing job with that. And the CEOs and the team there are just absolutely phenomenal. When do you get time? Or have you got your calendar in front of you? You're, we're doing this on screen. Have you got a mobile phone there? Have you got a calendar printout? I'm serious. Can you can you pull up an average week? Pull up last week, and I'm oh, totally painting you into a corner. And you'll probably say last week wasn't a great week. Oh, I know you were in were you Canberra, Melbourne last week in one of our chats. You're on planes, trains, and automobiles. Yes. But you pull up the last few yes, weeks. Yes. Scroll back in an average week. Yes. Uh, you don't yes. work 38 hours. You'd be doing 50. Plus, like with everything you do, you're always on, apart from when you're home because you're connected. In an average week, if you could divide into work you do for Resilium, where you're making mm-hmm. money, running a, yeah, you know, it's yeah. a, it's an enterprise that you run, it's a business, yeah. and you want to, yeah. one of the metrics is profit. Uh, biggest metric for you is impact. But then if you look at the other work you do is non for profit, what's the balance like in an average week? <laughs> um, the average week is around about 30 to 40% resilient and about 60 to 70% not-for-profit for me at the moment. And I'm comfortable with that. I think the, the 60 to 70% not-for-profit gives me energy. It gives me, I get up in the morning going, oh my gosh, this is such a tough challenge. How do we deal with this? Like, I think you've heard of Andrew Tate. It annoys me, not just him, but how much momentum he's got. Um, and I'm kind of thinking, well, I'm a man. I, 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 how do I step up? How do I use my skills, uh, my life force to help the weakest and the most vulnerable in our society? So that, that kind of gives me lots of joy. And, but don't get me wrong. I do 14-hour days. I do sometimes 16-hour days. Some of those days I'm in flow and it goes, wow, where those 14 hours goes. I get to work uh, with my son a lot. So he and I create content. So we're doing a lot of work now around how do we raise gentlemen? Uh, how do we raise boys and men as they go through crisis? They don't reach for the bottle. They don't reach for aggression, that they know how to deal with difficult emotions like anger, frustrations in a gentle way to themselves and others. So, I, you know, it's kind of cool. and. You know, we have a bit of a intensity around us that I quite enjoy. The energy is contagious. It's a bit like when Sa- <laughs> when Harry met Sally. You know, they're sitting in that coffee shop, and I want what she's having. I want what he's having. I think in the speaking, coaching, podcasting, influencer, and I really don't like that word influencer because it just makes me feel like I need to have a shower yeah. sometimes. But it becomes so much. <laughs> I, 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 brand, brand, brand. You're the opposite. Yes, and that's, yes, that's yes, interesting yes. talking to you. I reckon we could put you on the global stage. In fact, I'll reframe that. You could absolutely own the global stage. Just get someone else to do your marketing. Okay. Tell me if you know anybody. Tell me if you know anybody. I'm up for it. Well, my son's up for it. So he and I are working together. So um, I, I'm so, I'm a content, I like looking at a problem and solving it. I'm not very good at marketing. So if you, if you know a person, let me know. I know a few, and I'll think about it. But is that like does that excite you to think? How do you amplify? Because you, you you've got a big Sorry. base in Australia, but Australia is a small yeah, place. Totally. And look in t- transparency, down the track, I've still got two young kids, so you know, I'm not leaving these shores anytime soon. But thinking, how do we get yeah. some work? You know, I'm doing a few talks each year in America. 
I think your message, though, is so profound. Let, let me think about that. Uh, the I'd obvious one would be to write a book, get someone to write it and talk. In your, in your books, do you talk a lot about your experience or is it more a little bit about my Not experience? Much. A little bit about like so the uh, mental resilience was a very short period of the short part of the book, but not um, uh, mental resilience. Like I think had you know, maybe four or five pages to me, and the rest was the content. Let me think about it. And the first Ooh. thought that bubbles up is you got resilience, which is the mm. entity. Yeah, we mm. Kamal Sama dot mm. me or mm. you. Mm. I reckon yeah. writing about the me and really exploring that story because some, some of what you told me today I, I'm like, oh and we're just, just going i want more of that i, I could see thomas making notes what more my god i reckon there's a book in you now whether Thank that's you. i appreciate it. the pathway <laughs> to go bigger on we let's chat more so my thing is that i want to get this andrew tate message out and so i feel like i've got something to share on that space so yeah that's so that's why i'd want to do it well, I think you need to occupy that space. So I'll, I'll try a different motivator mm. rather than applying ego and you know, you know, amplification, which you go blah, blah, blah. It's almost like playing chess and you've got to knock that pawn out because it's toxic. He's very oh, it's clever, toxic. though, his use of social. Mm. And even my, my, mm. my son in year six, and they, they all know about him. Everyone talks about him. He's just got this, this message going wow. out. It's toxic, but yeah, he's, he, he knows how to use message. I'd love to have his skills on marketing with our message. That would be yeah. awesome. My thoughts for you with respect, my friend, is mm. get out of your own way. It's the U2 song. So what I'm going to take out of this podcast is a goal to find someone who helps you know, put you there and wipe out That'd all awesome. the bullshit info and have some really good role models, especially for young men. Yeah, I'd love it. Yeah, thank you. I'd be very grateful. Question, just to go down a bit deeper on that, if 30 or 40% of your work is with Resilium and the rest is in the non-for-profit sector, are you in flow in both or are you in flow in one area more than the other? I feel like I get to – well, both of them support one another. So the content that we create for leaders and the research we do for leaders is not that dissimilar in terms of emotional mastery. It's not, not that dissimilar from – um, you know, how do you make sure that when a 17-year-old boy gets dumped by their girlfriend that they don't get aggressive or they don't get possessive? So there's certain similar constructs around that. I, I would say that I wish I was in flow more, uh, but, you, you know, th there's a certain level of admin stuff and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I think I'm not in flow there, but when it comes to content creation. Not in flow with you doing accounts. <laughs> I, I've, I've worked with you and we actually had to have a little trigger because we were so in flow. It was like a little message or a little prompt, especially when you're presenting virtually that we had to come back and go, just a little anchor because, yeah, you light up. When, when, when the green light goes, bang, you're on. Totally on, and it's authentic, and it is a high energy. Uh, it's which again is the contrast of you, the monk. Is, are you always a monk, or is it the former monk? I don't know. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like it's become part of my DNA at the moment. So I'm very good at switching on, but I'm also very good at switching off. So I, I don't have very much shades of gray in the middle. I try to make the mindset shift from hard work. I don't work hard anymore. I work intensely. So I, yeah, I, I struggle to just sit down on the couch and do nothing, but I will meditate and do a four, you know, 10 day retreat 
of silence. And then I'll do like we're doing right now uh, with Telstra. We're going around Australia. We've done seven cities uh, in the last X number of weeks and workshops and stuff in between. So yeah, I like I like the juxtaposition of both energies. Mm. What type of dog do you have? What breed? I have a cavoodle. A cavoodle. <laughs> and I was I was the dad who didn't want the dog. Now I love the dog. COVID dog. His name is Zeus. Was it a COVID no, dog? No, no, no. We've had him for seven years. We were, one of my biggest regrets in life is not getting a dog earlier. Yeah, we've got a, a groodle, and so it's a, a friend of mine ah. calls him AFOs, another fucking oodle. And during COVID, we had <laughs> AFOs everywhere. Now, there's a reason for asking. You remind me of a Ridgeback. I used to have Ridgebacks, and Ridgebacks <laughs> they have two speeds. And and incorrectly, people think Ridgebacks hunt the lions, but they don't. The lion stands there, and two or three Ridgebacks they run at the lion and they dart away at the. the uh. Last minute. This is when they're hunting in Zimbabwe. So you've got a couple of ridgebacks and the lion becomes almost paralyzed and then the hunters come along and the rest of the story is not so nice. But ridgebacks either go a million miles an hour or they sit in the sun and they sleep. So you're my ridgeback, the resilient ridgeback. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I like that. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah. Put your Thank hands you. up. I'll, I'll take that. I'm going to say that to Ange. Give the ridgeback a ring. We just get the ridgeback back on. So look into the crystal ball for me and then we're going to do the performance mm. intelligence baker's dozen. But before we do that, imaginary crystal ball, mm-hmm. what does life look like in, we'll go three years. I think five years is way too long. If we ask anyone five years before COVID, totally got stuffed up. But three years from yeah. now, you wake up, you have a magic day, you're impacting just in a beautiful level on scale. What, what are you doing? What does the day look like? There was a young boy that came to me about three, four years ago, and I met him. I just bumped into him. I said, hey, Kamal, do you remember me? And I said, of course I do. How are you? And he said, Kamal, three years ago you said something and I didn't want to hear it. And he basically wanted to know how to talk to girls. And I said, yeah, I'm not going to teach you. I know I can teach you how to do it. I can teach you how to connect with girls. But because if your heart isn't right yet and I give you these skills, you're not going to use it for good. You're going to use it for evil. Come back to me when you've got a good heart. And that was a hard call. It was a really hard call. And it came from a place of serving. He came back to me and after three years and said, wow, Kamal, you, I didn't like you. I thought you were arrogant because you were calling me out. But it was true. I was trying to use people rather than serve them. And now I've changed my life. And so fast forward three years, I'd love that young man to be teaching some of this stuff. I'd like that young man to be a mentor to other young kids going through stuff. I would like, I I don't even need to be around. I I want to be making sure that he's there and he's teaching young boys and men and even young girls how to be connected to themselves and connected to the other people. So that, that would be the resilient side of things. I think it would be, we've done more research into this stuff. We've cracked some of these wicked problems around why is it that some people when they go through a difficult time become hardened while some people become more compassionate that would be a really interesting wicked problem to to solve Uh, i'd like to be able to yeah i'd like to have five million mentors mentoring people and you know people don't feel lonely so they don't you know older men or older women you know have purpose and meaning because they're supporting the younger generation. For me, that would be that would be joyful. And I see you light up 
so for people who are watching this on the on the video, you you you're always you've got energy and, and life, and you've got really nice teeth as well. And you show them, but you your teeth <laughs> light up, Kamal, when you talk about that. Thank you. Now, you, you can bypass this. I know you don't like cricket, but there's a saying that we say you let one go through to the keeper, which is a ball comes out yeah. normally off, off stump and you leave it so you don't nick it. So if this ball's zinging outside off stump, you can leave it. H- how many conversations do you have like that? Because you've told me you know, in, in our catch-ups and coffees and walk and talks, you're always talking to somebody. So in an average week, how many people, how many calls do you have where you reach out to people to help or to provide a guiding hand or you know, a moral support like you did with that young man three years ago? I, I make it a point to call at least six people a day of my friends. I've, I've got my list uh, on my phone, and whenever I get a chance, I'll check in and say, are you doing okay? One of my friends, um, says one of my friends' father passed away on a week ago, and I was noticing him how he was interacting with or some of the other males were interacting with him, and I'm like, they're talking about banal stuff. I'm just going to go up to him and say, hey, mate, I love you. I care for you. And this is a shit time right now, but I'm going to give you a hug. I'm going to call you every single day. And I think I can do that because when I went through my dark time, I needed people to call me, and there are some people that did. Um, and for that, I'm very grateful. So I, I make it a – I would call at least six people a day, uh, on my list of people to just check in and see how they are. Um, and, you know, it's while I'm walking somewhere. And I think intimacy is so important for men, but we don't express it. So on Valentine's Day, I called up all my mates and just said, I freaking love you. <laughs> they broke up. <laughs> what do I do with that, Kamal? I said, yeah, I just want to let you know I love you. Like, it's Valentine's Day. I said, why didn't you give me a call? Where are my flowers? Where are my chocolates? Um, and they broke up and laughed. And they go, yeah, well, you know, I'm going to go first. I'm going to go first. That's my – and you don't, it's, it's, they're used to me and, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll yeah. But it's playful and it's also needed, right, because you, you're having a bit of fun with mm. it. But I'm sure mm. that makes your mates feel great. Yeah, well, I think it gives them permission to uncomfortable um, first when they yeah, say, "Are you yeah. still with your wife?" Is there anything you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. Or you know, I'll, I'll do the Stevie Wonder thing. I'll go, "I just called to say I love you," and then then they say, "Look, you can tell everybody that Kamal called me and serenaded me. How cool is that?" <laughs> We're going to put some music in post-production on this. Uh, I, 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 I love that. And I do. I love the sentiment, all jokes aside, because men, especially in this country, need to get a lot more comfortable with saying to their mates, you're a great bloke, I love you, hey, thanks for the support, and being there for each other. And one of the big passions you have is around mental health and youth suicide and preventing that. So this is all interrelated. But what I've loved about talking to you, I, I, I was wondering, actually, pre-talking to you, Kamal, how does this man – there's a Han ad, it's a beer ad, whiz, you probably would have still been at school, but it's Michael Caton and there's this guy drinking at the bar. Do you remember this ad and he's drinking Han Light? And then the narrator says, how does one man have so much talent? It's this guy at the bar, he's holding court, telling stories. You know, he's this wrangler, he's a great sports person. That's how I, I've looked at you. How can one man have so much talent? But in talking to you, in researching you, it is all so connected. Like when you follow the bouncing ball, there's a beautiful narrative, a beautiful story, and you pay it forward so it really is it's 
It's authentic. It's totally unique. No one can get up on stage and own it like you do. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. That's a great Very segue. Let's go to the performance intelligence baker's dozen. Kamal Salma, I'm going to hit wow. you with right. 13 rapid-fire questions. You just answer. The 13? First wow, four. okay. 13. Well, baker's okay. dozen. Well, okay, yep. that's it. Right. First, let's we'll it. start okay. with the favourites. Number one, your favourite song or band? Favourite song or band? Um, In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. And it, it, it really reaches out to me because In Your Eyes... I look great in your eyes. And what we need is people to look good in another person's eyes. That's what we live for. Question two, your favorite movie? Favorite movie. Oh, gosh. I'm um, a Star Wars junkie, so I love Star Wars. May the, force, Star Wars may the force be with you. Question number three. Yeah, apart that's, from Star hey, hey, that's Star Trek. Like, that's sacrilege. What are you doing? Get your hand down. <laughs> I'm winding you up. <laughs> Question three. <laughs> apart from the three best-selling books you've written, What's your favorite yeah. book? Uh, my favorite book was a book written by a German Jewish Buddhist nun who wrote a book called Being Nowhere, sorry, Being Nobody Going Nowhere. And the title in itself changed my life because I was always busy becoming somebody and getting somewhere. And the fact that you can find joy in your life by not going somewhere and not being anybody was profound. And her name is Aya Kima, uh, and she changed my life dramatically. So question number four, having spent seven years in a monastery, what is your favourite possession? My skateboard. Wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I love my skateboard. So I skate a lot. Um, and I skate as much as I can in between meetings. Uh, I'll have it in the back of my car. If I go to the airport, I'll, it's a bit illegal, by the way, I'll skate up and down the parking lot. That, that has just thrown me in a really good way. The middle block of questions covers well-being and productivity rituals. So question number six, what time do you wake up and go to bed each day? I generally wake up around about 5 uh, a.m. every day. Um, and I'll try and get to bed about 10, 10, 10 o'clock. Question seven, do you have a morning routine? Yes, I do. Uh, get up, do yoga the first thing. Uh, and I'll, then I'll do some breathing and then I'll do some meditation. And then uh, have a shower. That's probably a cold shower. So you're doing all this stuff before. And I've been not? doing that for about. Yeah, I've been doing it for about forty years now. Yeah, you must look at all this Wim Hof stuff and breathing. And go, God, where, where were you guys back when I was thirteen in the middle of the desert in India? God, catch up the program, buddy. Uh, question number yeah. eight: What does your weekly fitness routine look like? Uh, yoga every day. Sometimes, most probably twice a day, and I will do. A long walk. So I just finished a 100K walk uh, this year, but I'll do between 20 and 30Ks. Uh, so I'll try and walk back from uh, my office uh, in the city to Pimble. Question nine? With my backpack, which, but yeah. You know, there's buses that go to Pimble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Question nine. Train. <laughs> yeah, train as well. <laughs> Give me a go to productivity tip. Plan out my week on Sunday, Sunday night. Just chunk out, do all the chunking out. Next block of questions is specific to your upbringing, some challenges and achievements. So question 10, your most vivid childhood memory. Uh, getting beaten up at school for being brown. What age was that? Uh, I think I was about 10 or 11. Yeah. Oh, I used to get beaten up a lot. That was just, but I think one time there was lots of blood and stuff like that. So that was, that was tough. It should not happen. Mm. Question 11, the biggest adversity you've faced and what did that teach you? 
losing my daughter when my daughter passed away and it taught me it taught me about impermanence that life is fickle and tomorrow is not promised mm. question 11 what achievement or achievements are you most proud of we've been married for 29 years and next year will be our 30th wedding anniversary so i am very proud of the fact that we've been together and raised a family you should buy your wife a skateboard <laughs> got a number like of a, them she won't take them a diamond encrusted one here you are darling you get this for 30 years okay. uh, question number 13 what is your definition of high performance to be in flow where you don't leave a residue i think it's easy to be to have performance to have performance from a place of flow where you don't leave a residue mentally emotionally psychologically with you or your the people that you care about yeah wow Gosh, we've covered some depth today. You've gone deep. We've had a few giggles. I've learned a lot about you. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to listening back to this and, and getting a lot of those messages, that wisdom as well. So I've got a final. This is the flip. Is there a question in preparation for this that you thought I would ask you or I should have asked you that I haven't? Or the flip, is there a question you'd like to ask me? I'll ask you one question. It's a, maybe a longer question. Then how does the person who is an elite athlete, go to becoming an elite entrepreneur like yourself. Can you ask me an easy one? Come on. <laughs> how, are we going for, how are we going for time, Wiz? Can you ask me, like, you know, should I go glycemic index or is that thrown out? Like, can you teach me one of the 12 essential mental skills? Yeah, let's channel in on that. A great question. I wasn't elite, I was good. Or my story is I was good, not great. So I, I think the elite, that upper echelon, they find it difficult to coach. They sometimes find it difficult to to jump to the next task. They, and I'm talking the best of the best because they often have an mm. unconscious competence. They don't know how they mm. catch, throw, kick, pass. Uh, if it's a, a physical like running or swimming, it's just you know, more physical rather than technical or tactical. So I think the fact I was good, and for me it was that the burn for me is could have I got to that next level? I, I don't think much higher, maybe another 10%. And, and, and interesting, what do I teach now uh, with executives, companies now and, and elite athletes is mental skills because I said this to you, my friend, you teach what you're good at or you teach some of the areas where you've mucked up. So I yeah. find because I've got to a good level and if I'm working with a high performer, I can really, you know, buzzword, but lean in and, and I get it. And I don't want them to leave talent on the floor. Mm -hmm. I like now, one of the most important tasks when you transition from any career to another one is, and, and I'll quote Ed Cowan, who I've quoted a few times on this podcast, but Ed said he got to playing cricket for Australia. And what a lot of athletes do incorrectly is think they'll jump to the next mountain. So Ed said, I climbed the mountain and then in transition to you know, go and be an entrepreneur as Ed is, a lot of people think you jump to the next mountain and that's how you fall flat on your face. You have arrogance, you know, the opposite of humility that you said so important. So Ed said, you climb down the mountain, but you have a set of skills that helps you scale the next mountain faster. And again, tapping into that coaching mind so I did that without even realizing it. You know, good, not great. Right, right. And then I had wonderful yeah. men and women around me. It's called personal training. I often say this, if anyone wants a grounding and to get the best school you can possibly have, be a personal trainer, charge shit wages, but work with wonderful people and open your ears and get life lessons. So sort of 
rolling that in, you know, I was good, not great, and then had a desire to help other people and have had some wonderful mentors along the way. Thank you. If people, well, not if, for people to go and find out more about you, to connect with you, to buy your books, to do your programs, to get more of you, how do they best find you online? Uh, very easy, resilient.com, that's it. R-E-Z-I-L-I-U-M.com. I-U-M, that is correct, yeah. resilient.com, um, and on, obviously on LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. Um, you can follow, uh, we do a lot of content on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, it's good, really good content. I've loved talking to you. I can't wait. We've got another program coming up with a government contract soon. We'll connect and talk about that. And I'm really excited about seeing you grow in that mental health space. And we'll chat about that online as well to get you some athletes to help you really dig down and get that message out. It's a great message. You're a great man. Kamal. Thank you so much. I love you. (laughs) I love you too, man. I love you too. I love you too. And I'm very grateful for, for our friendship. Yeah, so am I. I think that's the first time I've said I love a man on the podcast and I feel totally comfortable doing it. You're a good man. You're a great <laughs> that's mentor. Good well, that's good to See ya. Bye. See you, mate. Bye. Hi again, it's Andrew and I hope you really enjoyed that episode. We would appreciate if you helped to amplify the Performance Intelligence Podcast by sharing episodes with your friends and with your colleagues by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help get the message out to a wider audience and I love reading the comments as well. If you'd like to know more about booking me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite or purchasing one of the books I've written, including MatchFit, or if you'd just like to receive my monthly e-newsletter, which is called the AM edition, that has stacks of information specific to all things human performance, go to andrewmay.com. And we'll see you on the next edition of Performance Intelligence.